Hello and welcome to another episode of the IWP Files, the Alumni Spotlight Series, where we delve into the successes, the challenges, the advice, and the lessons learned. From a national security graduate's perspective, here is your host, Katie Bridges. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Annalisa Quinn, a 2015 graduate of the MA program in Statecraft and National Security Affairs at the Institute of World Politics. Um, so Annalisa, you are currently a research analyst uh, with Thomson Reuters Special Services, and I understand that you're a subject matter expert in human rights crimes pertaining to forced labor and the goods produced through forced labor and that you're supporting different law enforcement clients. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work and the issues that you're dealing with. Uh, sure. So I think I think you and I have talked recently and in depth about uh, some of the most challenging problems that I've been dealing with, um, well, and the United States as well, uh, particularly the situation in Xinjiang, China. We have, uh, as the United States, uh, enacted a series of law enforcement actions and laws in order to combat, um, to take a stand really against a lot of the, what we view as human rights crimes that are occurring in Xinjiang, China. Um, many people have been placed in uh, re-education camps uh, against their will. Um, there have been stories of people placed in prison, um, many people that, like our Uyghur people that live in the United States at this point, haven't heard from their family in Xinjiang. Um, they, many of them that I have spoken to, um, fear that they are never going to hear from their, their parents, their brothers and sisters, their loved ones again, um, just because of the policies that the Chinese government has enacted in order to, uh, in their view, uh, create an ideal society within Xinjiang. Um, unfortunately, some of the things that have been part of this policy are to uh, set Uyghurs to work in manufacturing sites, in factories, sometimes in Xinjiang and sometimes we believe in other parts of, of China. And since we as the United States cannot really um, you know, go into China and save these people uh, we, or, or really prevent any, any of those types of policies that they are enacting, uh, the thing that we can do is um, prevent those goods be from being sold in the U.S. Um, because it, it, it's been a fairly bipartisan effort, as, as I've talked to you about earlier. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats have said that we don't want these goods. We don't want goods produced from forced labor, from prison labor, um, to be sold in the United States. And... United States citizens do not want to put their, their hard-earned money towards these actions, towards making them profitable. Um, so what a lot of my efforts have been lately and a lot of my focus has been to figure out these supply chains that are connected to Xinjiang, that, um, I don't know, supply chain has been another big 
uh, buzzword lately, um, just how complicated they are, uh, even when they are going well, even when there's not forced labor in them. There are often many different links in a chain that connects, um, you know, the T-shirt that you bought from from where you bought it, say at Ross or wherever, to uh, to the original creator, the original maker of the cotton fields. Um, so, due to that complexity, uh, we we have been trying to sort out like what supply chains actually are connected to China, what supply chains are connected specifically to Xinjiang. Um, uh, so that we can prevent those goods from coming into the U.S., um, hopefully preemptively. <laughs> so, so Annalisa, these sound like such important issues that you're work you're working on. Um, as an analyst, what does your day look like? What does a typical day at work look like? Um, I mean, I guess the thing that I enjoy most is there's not always a typical day. Uh, I get to look at a lot of different topics. Um, for, for one thing, not everything is Xinjiang. I do look at that topic quite frequently. It's been uh, a constant for me for probably the last three or four years now. Um, but there are uh, many other aspects of supply chain. There's uh, unfortunately many other aspects of human trafficking as well. And so those are some of the topics that I get into. Um, I think that uh, my company uh, does does like to do is also look out for new technologies, new data sets, new possibilities, um, new projects that we can pick up. And so I am frequently looking out for new information, for new projects, um, new new problem sets that I haven't thought of before. So uh, one, one aspect that I haven't really delved into quite as much is antiquities trafficking, which is a supply chain issue, but it's uh, a little bit more of, uh, it's not necessarily connected to like one area like Xinjiang. It can be coming from anywhere in the world where there are these uh, historic goods um, a big one lately has been Syria. Uh, due to the civil war there, uh, many of the historic items, uh, antiquities, uh, those are being looted by oftentimes bad actors. Sometimes, sometimes they are just people that are trying to feed their families, trying to sell something that they have found in order to benefit their families. But sometimes uh, those goods end up going towards funding uh, terrorist actions or, or, or other actions that we just don't condone or shouldn't condone. Mm -hmm. um, beyond that, uh, oftentimes these, these goods are illegally taken. They are part of the cultural heritage of a country. Um, so, so we want to make sure that they stay within the country and ideally maybe make it to a museum. Um, so that's one thing that we've been trying to, we've been thinking about, like how do we build that out more? It is in some ways maybe even more challenging than some of the other supply chain problems because if you have this tiny little, I don't know, like tiny little pot or something like that, and I didn't tell you that I dug it up in my backyard or wherever it was. Like, how are you going to traffic? How are you going to trace that? Mm -hmm. So, um, like, those are some of the problems that we we have coming up, or we're thinking about, uh, just among some of our 
our analytic friends. Um, so typically, typically though, um, we'll have a request that will come in from our client and we'll do our best to, to uh, game out how we're going to address that and provide, provide a report, provide a network analysis, provide, um, maybe provide a data tool if that is actually the thing that, that they need. So, and, <laughs> and usually we'll build from there because every time we do something, we learn a little bit more and then we build upon that body of knowledge. So maybe we can uh, help the client with the same sort of project later, or we can help a new client, uh, usually government client. Uh, but sometimes we have our, our private uh, clients that, that we help as well. So it's, every day is new. So there's not really something, like, there's not really like a set hum, humdrum day, I guess. So, Annalisa, how can regular people avoid buying uh, goods that are produced through forced labor? I know that you're working on this legislation, which will make it easier for us. But in the meantime, you know, what, what can we do? No, that's a big question that I would like to answer for people. It's, um, I sympathize most with small businesses uh, with trade laws like this that are put into place because most of them want to do the right thing. They don't want to be contributing towards forced labor. They don't want to be buying goods, certainly, that are uh, linked to forced labor or, or human trafficking at all. Um, but they don't necessarily have the same tools that a large company or the federal government certainly has. They don't have a team of analysts. They don't have... They don't have a huge data set or, or so much money to put towards that particular problem, that supply chain risk problem. Uh, but the thing that I do recommend that people do uh, is have a conversation with your suppliers. Um, this is a more on the small business side. Uh, ask them how they are sourcing things. How, like, where is this coming from? And if they are not getting a good answer, uh, then maybe it's a good idea not to source from that particular um, that particular supplier. Mm -hmm. uh, for for people for individuals, I think it's a good idea. Like it's you're, it's obviously not all on you to clean up the American supply chain. Uh, though I do encourage people to talk to their Congress people to to talk to companies that they do business with. Uh, ask them what they are doing. Uh, to ensure that their supply chains are free of these goods. Um, I, I also encourage people to educate themselves on the topic. Uh, if there are particular goods that are frequently coming up in the news as linked to forced labor, it's a good idea to, to educate yourself on that and you know maybe think twice before purchasing it. So um, like often to, uh, in the case of Xinjiang, um, of course, like any goods that are coming from Xinjiang at this point are uh, not permitted in the United States with certain ex exceptions um, if there is proof that there is no forced labor uh, associated with the good. Mm -hmm. um, but cotton, tomatoes, and polysilicon products, uh, polysilicon being a key component of many solar panels, um, those are the, yes, those are the, the ones that uh, the U.S. government has primarily targeted in these actions. 
um, lately. So if, if you do have any good that you're purchasing that uh, has any of those components in them, um, it's a good idea to check out like, well, where did this originally come from? So that's not going to be foolproof because as I said, supply chains are very complicated. Um, so <laughs> at the same time, if it's a private individual, I also say, you know, I'll cut you some slack. I don't, I, I know that your heart is in the right place. So nine, nine hops down the supply chain, if it does happen to be connected to something, not fault you for that, but I might fault a large company that has all of the resources to figure it out. So, um, so if, you know, say I want to go home and educate myself on these topics, what would be the best way for me to do that? So I would look at, uh, certainly CBP's office of trade, uh, their sites, there are a series of WROs, which are withhold and release orders. Uh, those are goods that uh, Customs and Border Protection have deemed that um, maybe we don't want into the, in the United States. Maybe uh, they need to be looked at with greater scrutiny before they are allowed to be enter, uh, allowed entry into the United States. Um, they're not all China. There are actually a series of other goods in there that uh, people can educate themselves on and um, and assess. Um, there are also plenty of NGOs out there um, that do focus on these topics. So Amnesty International does have uh, a good series of articles on forced labor specifically. They of course cover a, an array of human rights uh, issues, but forced labor is, uh, is a main one. Um, yes, I, th I think Honestly, in some ways, like a Google search is, is a, you'll, we will come across a plethora of information out there. Um, what else could I recommend? Uh, Karen, uh, they, K-H-A-R-O-N, they have been a, they're actually a data supplier, but they also have a series of good white papers on forced labor and some of it specific to the UFLPA, uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Um, and I'd also recommend, I would also recommend Victims of Communism as well. So uh, Dr. Adrian Zenz has a series of very good reports uh, specific to China, but uh, there is, is some relevancy to um, other parts in the world, applicability to other areas as well. Mm -hmm. How did you become interested in these issues of human rights and supply chains originally? Yeah, you know, I <laughs> when I was first coming to IWP, I thought I was going to be much more of a, a counterterrorism or a uh, like Russia subject matter expert because that was actually these were the directions I was going, and I did work uh, on CT for for the first bit of my career. CT um, being counterterrorism for any of our listeners who don't know. Yes, um, and. But really, it, it honestly got assigned to me in a way. Like it wasn't necessarily anything that we we knew was going to come up, but it was really what our client needed at the time. Uh, further insight into supply chains, um, further insight into China and other areas of the world as well, um, specific to forced labor. Um, so. It, it's actually really something that I didn't know that 
I would be so passionate about that I would care so much about. But sometimes, sometimes things find you. Sometimes the subject finds you and you find that you really love it. Um, so <laughs> I guess it taught me how to be open to, to new topics. So what do you feel is the biggest impact you've made so far in this work? If you can say, I don't know if you can say, I mean, don't know if I can say specifically, but I do think I can say that I, um, have contributed to the body of knowledge on forced labor within supply, supply chain. So, uh, myself with, with many other people, um, many other people, even within my own company, um, it's really been a topic that has been getting a lot more press than it, than it has in previous years. And I think that, um, I think that that's a wonderful thing. Like, like some of the companies that are on this topic are competitors of ours. And so as much as I'm like, ah, we could do that, we could do that better than you. Uh, I, I always think, well, they are working on this. Uh, they are contributing towards something that is good. We are trying to, to make sure that we are not making these human rights crimes profitable, mm -hmm. uh, which I hope will contribute towards preventing them or um, mitigating them. Um, but the least thing that we can do is uh, <laughs> not make them profit yeah. profitable. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, good for you. That's awesome. Um, if somebody's interested in these topics and wants to get into a career where they're studying these and also making a difference, what advice do you have for someone like that? Hmm. We'll come to the, the Institute of World Politics. <laughs> of course. <laughs> uh, first, uh, I would say, uh, I mean, when I first started on supply chain, I did have to look up supply chain <laughs> to figure out a good definition of what that meant. Um, since then, I've gotten a supply chain management certificate. I've educated myself on that topic. Um, I think that, that it's a good topic for anybody to be knowledgeable on, because if you are at all a consumer in the United States, which most of us are, unless you're completely off grid, um, then, then supply chain touches you. Um, uh, and I think it's important to, to figure out where you fit into all of that, like how, how you are contributing towards it. So, um, I'd recommend... I guess I'd recommend maybe looking into topics of trade. I'd recommend uh, reading up on, on human rights, uh, specifically forced labor, of course. Um, and then, I don't know, honestly, trade is just a fascinating topic. Um, the, the United States Commerce, um, Department of Commerce does have uh, quite a good amount of reading on that. I would also recommend DHS's Office of Trade. Um, they have a good amount of information on that as well. Um, and then, honestly, steer your career towards that. If, if you are seeing that uh, a career has something to do with supply chain, go for it. You mentioned IWP, and I was planning to ask how grad school fit into your big picture. I understand you were doing paralegal work in estate and business planning before IWP, and then you just decided to completely pivot your career. 
And so I'd love to hear about that transition. What made you choose that? Um, what made you choose IWP? And how, what was it like to just shift like that? Um, I, I think it's one of my instances where I felt most brave in a way because, yes, it was... It was definitely a moment of upending my life um, as it had been. Um, I really did enjoy being an estate and business planning paralegal. I enjoyed our clients. They were generally very nice people, had very stable lives. They weren't litigious or anything. Um, but I also figured out that unless I wanted to be an actual attorney, I had pretty much come to the end of my learning. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like I had, I had pretty much covered all the ground that I was going to cover in, unless I wanted to do further education. And I knew that I didn't want to be an attorney, so no offense to attorneys out there, but. <laughs> it wasn't your path. Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't my path. I also realized that I, I wasn't really on the path that I had originally wanted anyway. Um, like a state and business plan, it was kind of a thing that just happened to me, even though it's something that I am still very grateful for. I still keep in touch with my first boss. Um, she's a lovely lady. Um, but I wanted it to be something that I, I had chosen because I was passionate about it. Mm -hmm. And I'd always wanted to find a way to contribute to my country, to, to help people. <laughs> And I had originally seen that as, I don't know, like, like some special agent or something like that out there. But I, I can, in some ways, that's the view that a lot of people have of, of working for the government. Like you have a badge and, and all of this and you're kicking down doors. But it's not, it's actually mostly not that. <laughs> and coming to IWP helped me to figure that out. Um, so IWP, I did look around at other places in D.C. I thought D.C. is the place to go if I want to learn about the government, if I want to, to change paths. Because um, you came from California. I came from California. I was, um, you know, California is a lovely place, but I was like, maybe, maybe I don't need to stay just here. Um, and particularly if I want to work... Um, for the federal government. So uh, IWP just kept coming up somehow. So maybe that's a good testament to the Google Analytics <laughs> somehow. But it did just keep coming up. And so I, I submitted, um, I, I think it was first I said, okay, I want to come to this open house. And I planned a trip to come out to DC to visit a friend of mine who was going to Georgetown at the time and visited Georgetown, a few others and came to IWP as well. And it, it just felt like home, honestly. Oh, mm -hmm. it, it did like to start with. And I, well, the, the course list is really what sold it too. Cause I, I was reading through and, um, like so many of the classes just seemed like something that I would want to do for fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if I could just take a class and not, not even have it go towards a degree, I was like, I would take this class anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, it, it just kept coming up. I had, I had a job interview with, uh, with a government agency. And while at that time I did not get the job, 
they told me like, oh yeah, you're thinking about IWP? We're going to be down there next week, actually. Oh, <laughs> like, oh okay. Well, I guess that I am onto something here. So I submitted my application. I think the, like the next day or two, I submitted the application. And then, um, of course, I got accepted and I came out the next fall, which was uh, fall 2013. Packed up my little Corolla and with everything I decided to continue to own. <laughs> Did you drive across the country? I drove across the country with my friend from Georgetown. She wow. came out specifically to drive with me. Mm -hmm. And I had my cross-country adventure in five days. It was fast. Um, yeah, and it, that's it's been 10 years now, actually. So. Yeah, and that's I'm, crazy. Yeah, I still love living out here. So And, and it led to good things as well. So, so has your... Um, I know you mentioned you did counterterrorism work before this. His was your education helpful in the, your counterterrorism work, and then also in your current work? Yes, um, very much so. Um, so, I mean, we do have professors here uh, that like have worked in some or all of these particular of uh, the fields that I touch on, um, and so that insight and that perspective. Um, like having their, having had them go before me <laughs> has definitely helped me to figure out what resources are, are out there. Who can I talk to? Like, I honestly, I can't emphasize how, enough how much, how useful it has been to, to have a book, to have, uh, a website, to have, to have those, those resources that they originally provided to us, uh, already in my back pocket. So I, I, like you have to build from there obviously, but you already, ha already have a place to start from. Um, I would actually, your, so your father, Dr. Linchowski, he, um, there's actually indirectly, he provided me with a resource uh, on the forced labor issue. So uh, Dr. Harry Wu had a, a large body of research on the Lao Gai Right. Uh, network of prisons in China. And so I was able to read up on his congressional testimony, his research. And I'm not sure that I would have necessarily known that that type of research was out there. It's like say, something available to me if I hadn't come here and, and heard about because it's a little bit more of a niche sort of uh, area. But I know that Dr. Dr. Elland, he had a uh, knew each other. So that's awesome. Um, did you um, use IWP career services while you were here? I did. Okay. <laughs> was it helpful? Um, Derek, so I, I will say the thing that Derek helped me with a bit, like quite a bit actually, um, my internship. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not exactly sure how he did it. So I was supposed to be. Uh, an intern at the Croatian embassy mm -hmm. uh, for State Department, um, I think, what, summer of 2014. Mm -hmm. And except this, these are not paid internships. And yeah, I just was crunching the numbers and there was no way I could take three months away and not be making money. And so he said, well, you have the internship, you have the clearance and that's associated with it and all that. Let's Let me see if I can talk to 
to people out there in the world uh, in State Department to see if we can get this switch to something that's DC based. And I'm not sure how he did it, but he did. <laughs> uh, so I ended up with a DC based uh, internship at State and it was with, uh, it was with an office called the Human Smuggling and Trafficking Center, which was an interagency sort of office, which is now defunct. But as it turns out, it did, I don't know, I guess it was a, a sort of a precognition, prescient sort of thing. Like I, um, the subject matter was human trafficking. It was forced labor in some ways. And so it ended wow. up. Wow, yeah, so you've come full circle. No, it, it, I really <laughs> did. Like I, I'm just like, I don't, I don't think Derek intended that, but he actually did me a really good turn in that way because uh, some of the people that uh, did work in that office, like I still know them now, uh, they're still doing a lot of that same work. Um, so it, it was very helpful as it turned out. <laughs> So, good job, Derek. That's awesome. <laughs> if, and for everyone who doesn't know, Derek Dorch is our director of career services. And he's been at it for, I guess, over a decade. He has. Wow. So, yeah, he, he continues. Um, and it's been working. Um, did you do anything differently as a result of your IWP education at work um, that, that had you not had this education, you would have? Hmm. Well, like I say, I think... Like I had more resources, like I had more tools in my toolkit. Um, and that actually includes people, <laughs> people that are our colleagues still that maybe I went to school with. Um, like I had a network then. I had um, former, former professors, former, um, former student, co-students that I can reach out to and ask questions of. Um, I think that I think it would have been possible for me to straight out come to DC and become an analyst, but it would have been, I think I would have been much more of a fish out of water in that case. I wouldn't have come with the amount of knowledge that I received here for one and the amount of knowledge that I can continue to receive. Uh, Cause like, for instance, like, like Dr. Hodakevich has been helpful to me on occasions. Uh, there was one time I was interested in learning about Russian tattoos uh, and symbols and things like that. And he's like, ah, I have a book about that. Let of me help. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, like things like that. Like, I, I know I have, I have this network behind me um, now and this, and this body of knowledge that goes with it as well. So. Um, and I have one more advice question, which is um, advice for our new students here. Um, how can they make the most of their IWP education during the, you know, year, two years, three years, depending on what program uh, they're in, that they're here? It will go so fast and also slow at the same time because, uh, yes, because <laughs> there will be so many things to take in and, and to learn and people to meet. I. I would say lean in, <laughs> lean into, I mean, to use a, a tired phrase at this point, but if there's an opportunity to go take a tour of the Pentagon or, or Gettysburg, which is one of the things I did, um, or like something that you haven't done before or a bit of knowledge that you uh, 
have never run across before. Like if you, like what I was doing Russian black widows for a little while, which hadn't been a topic that I had been familiar with at all. So I, I just delved into that particular topic. I still receive Google alerts on it every so often actually. Um, but, and definitely take advantage of the opportunity to, to meet your fellow students because uh, like I said, uh, before like that network that can be with you for the rest of your life, the rest of your career. Um, I'm still good friends with a lot of my fellow classmates. Um, and they are also resources I've relied on for, uh, for jobs, for, for advice, um, for all of these things. So, well, Annalisa, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you for everything that you've done for IWP over the years. Um, for anyone who doesn't know, Annalisa is a master event planner and has planned a huge reunion for us in coordination with some other alumni, but she was a main planner and um, uh, so many other events as well, both on the alumni board and in student government association way back when. So thank you, Annalisa. It was awesome to see you today. Yeah. Thank you so much for, for inviting me, Katie. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the IWP Files, the Alumni Spotlight Series. We hope you enjoyed our insightful conversation today. If you found this episode inspiring, educational, or simply entertaining, we'd love your support to keep our show going strong. First and foremost, don't forget to hit that subscribe button right now, wherever you're listening to us. Subscribing ensures you never miss an episode and helps us reach even more listeners like you. We'd be thrilled if you could share the IWP files with your friends, family, and colleagues. It's a fantastic way to introduce them to our engaging alumni stories and thought-provoking discussions. Connect with us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The IWP and online at iwp.edu. We love hearing from our listeners. Our podcast is made possible by the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C. If you're passionate about international affairs, national security, intelligence, and the art of statecraft, visit iwp.edu to learn more about our programs and events. Finally, if you have any thoughts or suggestions, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We value your feedback and ideas. Thank you once again for tuning into the IWP Files, the Alumni Spotlight Series. We'll be back with more fascinating stories and insights from our alumni. Until then, stay curious and stay engaged.